All right, we turn now, and we are in Exodus chapter 7, verse 8, through chapter 8, verse 19. This is a long text today, so we will be trying to speak and teach and learn fast, won't we, as we go through this long text. But why I broke it up this way, the, we're looking at the first three plagues that come upon Egypt, and the more as I studied this past week, many commentators too recognize it, there is a pattern to the ten plagues that come upon Egypt, at least with the first nine, they come in threes. So we're looking at the first three uh, this morning. And they build on one another. Even as the, we go one, two, three, they build on one another. And then as you go on to four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and then with the tenth, they're building on one another as a added and mounting warning, of course, to Pharaoh and to Egypt, but then to all the nations who will look on and consider the Israelites in the future. But the thing is with Pharaoh, he doesn't get the hint, does he? And I don't know about you, I've been there many times, you don't get the hint even as people or a thing is trying to get your attention to tell you something's wrong. So, for example, one time I was driving back from college, going to go visit my dad, and I was riding along in my Ford Ranger, uh, driving along the 210 interstate, heading east uh, through Pasadena to go down to San Diego, basically, to go see my dad. And as I was on the road, in the, really in the dead of night, as I was driving, this light came on on my dashboard, which always means, uh-oh. You know, what is this? Uh, so I pulled over, and it was some kind of oil lamp had lit up on the dashboard. And I was like, that's probably not good. Uh, but so I did the thing that we all do. You know, you open your hood and look at the engine, and you're like, it didn't explode. You know, it's like still there. And uh, I checked the oil level even. I was so proud of myself. And um, it had oil in it, so I'm okay. okay. So I drove the remaining 90 miles or whatever it was home. And uh, as I drove, wouldn't you know it, the light flickered off. I'm like, yes, there's no problem whatsoever. The light's off. My car's fine. I guess things are good now, right? Well, you can imagine where the story's about to go. Well, I kept driving, and I drove back, actually, to Los Angeles. I was going to school uh, after visiting with my dad, and I'm driving all around town. And I'm in school full-time. I feel pretty busy, and I don't have time to go see if there's anything wrong with my car. Uh, but apparently there was, because as I kept driving it, my car started making some strange sounds. And one day, as I was supposed to be heading to chapel, uh, which was required by the school, uh, I didn't go to chapel, because on the way, my car started making this, this loud ticking noise pulsated from the hood as I drove. It started to sound like a machine gun, click, 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 click. All to say, I didn't go to chapel, forgive me, John MacArthur. But I went right to the mechanic, who then notified me, Oh, you know what? There's no oil in your engine. Oh, is that a problem? Oh, yeah. You could have been hurt. You're lucky that the car didn't seize on the road or throw a rod, and actually, you could have got hurt yourself. It needs a new engine, which equals with that car, it's worth nothing. You're out of car, bud. And so, cue sad face. I didn't take the warning signs. Okay, I had the lights. I had the sounds. Uh, all these various things, so to speak, that the truck was doing to try and get my attention until it was too late, and then we were at a point of no return with this thing. Well, here's the thing. God can do this actually in your life, and I don't mean just merely ruin your car, but He can try to be doing things to get your attention, to capture your attention, and He can do so even through difficulty, to try and underscore for you you're weaker than you thought. You can't do this on your own. You really desperately need Him. Because this is what we forget. We live on autopilot. We do our own life, our own way, our own thing. 
And God, for his dear children, he will not let us go very far living like that. We need him. And the truth that comes out of this text as we're working through these mounting plagues upon Egypt, you dare not ignore this God. And there's far more at stake because then your car, right? Your very soul is at stake with this, to try and ignore this God. And really, you can't ignore Him because you will meet Him. We'll talk about this. You will meet Him one day face to face. So let this word from Exodus be that warning to capture your attention so you don't go meet Him unprepared. Don't dare ignore the Lord God. See this. See it in Pharaoh's life. Recognize it probably many ways in your own life that he's even using his judgments. He's using his disciplines to wake you up, to wake you up from your spiritual slumber, your spiritual autopilot that has no concern for the things of God. He's waking you up to say, you are finite, you are weak, you're not going to appear before me in judgment. Are you ready? In many ways, those disciplines are little opportunities to get ready. They're in your life even the difficulties, to turn you back to Him. So don't ignore this God. In contrast, don't harden your heart, but what are you going to do? You're going to soften it. You're going to receive His instruction, even as it humbles you, even as it stings, because you know this is the good work of a merciful God. Soften your heart to the, yes, powerful. That's what's going to be underscored in this testimony in Exodus. God is powerful. You don't want to reckon with Him, but we also find in it He's merciful. He's a Redeemer. Come to Him. Soften your heart to Him. To see this, we're going to unpack really four ways that we can soften our heart to our God, who we see here. He's a judge. Four ways in that way to get your heart ready to receive Him. And the first is this, don't challenge His divine Word. Don't challenge His divine Word. This is a call to submit to Him. This is a call to bend your knee. Because you cannot win this war against God. You just can't. And understand, Colossians talks about this. We are, by default, we are at war with God. We don't heed Him. We don't heed His Word. We're trying to live our own way. And that means we're declaring war against our Creator. And it's not a war that you could ever win. In our hardness of heart, this is what we do. We challenge God for His right to run our life. We challenge God who would oppose to do what we want to do with our life even though that's to our ruin. And Pharaoh embodies that kind of suicidal conflict against God. The battle lines are drawn because God has spoken His Word, in particular to Pharaoh, let my people go. Let them go to worship me. But Pharaoh first says, who's the Lord? Who's Yahweh? Don't know Him. Don't care. Don't don't really give a rip what God says not going to do it. Now, we saw last time Moses and Aaron, as they go appear before Pharaoh, they go bearing God's word, which means they carry in their voice the very authority with God. They are God's ambassadors to speak God's word to Pharaoh and to come with God's very authority. Let my people go. But to that, as the word comes to Pharaoh, Pharaoh draws the battle lines and he says, "Uh uh-uh, let's have a duel, God. Let's see who really is strong. Let's see who really is the greater God, because Pharaoh actually has the audacity to think it's probably him. Because that's why Pharaoh's going to go ask here for a miracle, a work, a wonder. That is, he's going to ask for a miracle for Moses and Aaron, not because he's open to persuasion, 
Oh, show me something to really vindicate yourself. He's saying this, show me something, Moses and Pharaoh, because whatever you do or whatever your God does, I can do it better. This is a challenge, and it comes from his pride. Moses, work whatever wonder you can, whatever your God can conjure up, but whatever it is, I can do it better. And at this point, Yahweh, the Lord God, is willing to play along. Look at verse 8 then, finally, of Exodus 7. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. Now, now just first of all, note this. Do you see that God so perfectly anticipates what's about to happen here? He knows exactly what Pharaoh's going to do. Pharaoh's going to ask you something. He's going to ask you to prove yourself by working a miracle. I know what Pharaoh's going to say, and here's what you're going to do in response. What's the point? God's in total control here. God knows Pharaoh's every move, and God already has the perfect counter move that he knows Pharaoh can never answer. This means it's not going to be a fair fight as Pharaoh draws the battle lines. These are not equal powers warring against one another, like supposedly Ohio State and Michigan football. No comment. It's not going to be a fair fight. These are not equal powers. It's far more like when you're playing your three-year-old in tic-tac-toe. And when you're like me, you're very competitive, and you're going to even try and beat your three-year-old repeatedly. And you're going to go, oh, maybe you should put your O right there. That was dumb, and you mark an X there, and you win. Because you know exactly what they're going to do. Or you can manipulate them so they do what you want to do. You're in total control. It's not a fair fight. Well, as things play out here, things are working just as God anticipated, God ordained. Verse 10, God's in total control. So Moses and Aaron, the Scripture says, went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded, which also implies Pharaoh's did it too by asking for a sign to prove them. And so what does Aaron do? It says in the middle of verse 10, Aaron, just as God commanded him, cast down his staff before Pharaoh and Pharaoh's servants, and it became a serpent. So this is like the first shot across the bow of the battle of the gods. Pharaoh asked for a a warning blow. Here it comes. And so Pharaoh's primed. He's ready. Oh, yeah? You think you got something, Moses? You think your God's got something? Watch this. Verse 11. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. So, Moses, congratulations. You made a staff turn into a snake. That's pretty impressive. All of my wise men can do that. That's child's play. That's baby stuff. There's nothing too extraordinary about that. What are you going to do next, Moses? Pull a rabbit out of a hat? Now, here's where, though, we come to the recurring question, because the Egyptian sorcerers, they're going to do this. They're going to make sticks become snakes, or maybe even some other kind of more vicious reptile. How do they do it? Are these, like magicians today, illusionists? Is this all smoke and mirrors? You don't get that impression at all from the Scripture text. Rather, as the Scripture presents it, this is something unnatural. It's inexplicable. In a natural sense. 
These are perfectly good sticks and stabs that suddenly become and get turned into living, breathing, moving creatures. Now, you might excuse or expect, well, of course, God can do that. He's God. But how do these magicians do that? Well, the text says they did so by their secret arts. So what does that mean? How did they do it? Well, it's a secret. These magicians, these wise men, they were enchanters. They were soothsayers. They had the special words to say in just the right way to work such transformative wonders. But again, how does that work? Because we know there's not actually magic words, as if you put special sounds together and they do magical things. Our words don't do that. They don't have that kind of power. But I think we cannot but conclude that these Egyptian wise men were tapping indeed to a supernatural power. It was demonic. This is the power of demons working what are called in Scripture's Lying wonders. Why are they called lying wonders? It's not because they're fakes or merely because they're illusions, but they're lying wonders because they're actually wonders that prop up falsehoods. That's why God gives this warning to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 13. He says, here's how you can determine who's a true prophet and who's a false prophet. And it's not by the one who does the wonders. Actually, in Deuteronomy 13, it says, if there is a guy who comes and works a sign or a wonder or talks about it, and then it becomes true, but he tells you to go worship other gods, don't believe him. No matter what miracle he supposedly did, do not believe the false teacher. You test him by the Word of God. That's how you know whether he's a true prophet or not. So get this then. It's not about wonders, signs, or miracles. It's not about riding in the sky to determine what's true. It's not liver shivers in your bones. It's not whatever impressions you have about what's right or wrong. That has nothing to do with the playing field about determining what's true about God. You go to Him and His Word. Nowhere else. Who's the true prophet? It's the one that speaks the Word of God. And so, and yet here even in the signs themselves as they happen. They all throw down their sticks. They all get turned to snakes. But even still, God gives a clue that, I see that, Pharaoh, but I'm still the greater power. Look at verse 12. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up all of their staffs. I love it. God's stick eats all the other sticks. But even then, Pharaoh didn't care. God won, even in this battle, but Pharaoh had seen enough. Pharaoh, more pointedly, he had his excuse he could cling to to justify his unbelief. Because see, the thing is, Pharaoh wasn't after truth. He wasn't after really trying to figure out who's the true God and who's got more power. He was after what he wanted And he just wanted any justification to believe what he wanted to believe. Namely that Yahweh has no claim to this people. So when God's snake eats all the other snakes, Pharaoh doesn't care. He doesn't take it to heart. He starts thinking things in his mind like, well, my magicians made way more snakes than Aaron made. We're every bit as strong or supposedly strong as Yahweh is. I'm not scared. So you see it there in verse 13. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And yet still, 
the Lord wasn't surprised by this. God knew this was coming. And so then we begin to come to grips with what a hard heart does. What does it do? It suppresses the truth. It denies the truth. It won't believe the truth. What does a hard heart do? It tunes out. It won't listen to the Word of God. That's a hard heart. It will then settle for any excuse, any alternate explanation to justify its reason to not listen or or obey. So you see then, instead of being honest seekers after truth, we humans, we pursue truth but with a bias, an anti-God bias, at least an anti-true God bias. Oh, we're open to coming up with any God that we can form in our own way. But when it comes to the true God, we'll make excuses, things that we can hold on to, whether it's false religions. Well, what about all the other religions out there? How do we know they're not true? Or whether it's evolution. Well, we all came from monkeys anyway. Or whether it's the impossibility of miracles. Can people really rise from the dead? Or whatever else it is that God teaches. We, we find excuses to not believe. Oh, it's those hypocrite Christians who tell that message. They don't live what they preach. Again, we're just trying to justify our own rebellion. We're not reckoning with the real truth of the matter. Why? Because we want to determine truth for ourselves. We will then buy any excuse, because we're very willing buyers, to justify our unbelief and rebellion. This is obviously the wrong move. And it's the wrong move in the first place because the evidence is just overwhelming. Like we see it here, even in the example of these snakes. But God has provided an abundance of supernatural truths and wonders to testify to the truth of Scripture. And just chief among them, you just look at creation. This didn't, this didn't evolve. It was designed. It was created. And that by the word of a generous, gracious sustainer of the world. And when you get to the particularities of the Christian message, what about the miracles the apostles wrought? Or very much, we get to the kernel of it, 1 Corinthians 15, the very resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. How can you explain that? You can't. It's the supernatural work of God. But you might say, well, I didn't see the empty tomb myself and so on and so forth. But you know what else there is? There is the recurring supernatural work of regeneration that God works in the heart of His sinner. And this room is filled with examples of it. Praise God. The recurring supernatural work where sinners that are captive and bound to their sin, weighed down with their guilt, they are forgiven and they are changed because Christ is alive. And that's what He does. People that love sin get moved to love Christ. And it's shown in a transformed life. That's inexplicable any other way. Whenever the divine word goes forth and it's accompanied by the Spirit, change happens. Lovers of sin become lovers of Jesus. And we see it in history. We see it with the changed life of the apostles. They were all cowards. They encounter the resurrected Christ. And then they are bold preachers who become martyrs for a faith. That a man rose from the dead. Or look at the reformers, what they stood for in the Word of God, or the evangelists of old, or the translators that go into far-off reaches, or the missionaries along with them, or just even in this room, the many faithful believers, that they've been irrevocably changed. Why? Because Jesus is now alive, changing them. The point is, 
there's an active power of God at work even right now in this room. They are testimonies that Jesus is alive, He's forgiving sinners, and changing them. So the power is all on God's side. It's all with His Word. Don't challenge Him. Submit to Him. Put down whatever excuse you were clinging to, but I, but I, I, I... Put down your justifications for your unbelief. Accept it. You'll be confronted with it one day or another, but accept it. He's God and you're not. And that's not a battle you can ever win to oppose Him. Second, don't neglect His right to judge. I think this is why we oppose His words so much. Because we just want to forget that He could possibly be our judge because we know we're guilty. Verses 14 to 25 of chapter 7. We don't want to believe in this God because He might condemn us. And so we deny that He can judge us. But either way, whether you deny it or you embrace it or not, judgment's coming. And here we see in the text, it's coming upon Egypt. Why? Because they reject God's Word. That's why. Look at verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. So go to Pharaoh, and in the morning he's going to go out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, so that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far, Pharaoh, this is key, you have not obeyed. So God's spoken, but Pharaoh, you have not obeyed. And so what? What's the consequence? Verses 17 and following. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am Yahweh, that I am God, that I am the Lord. How? Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall be turned into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. God's going to turn the Nile waters into blood. Fish will die. You won't be able to drink it. And if you're familiar with the, the region of the land we're talking about here of the Nile Delta, all life revolved around this, around the Nile and the water that came from it. I mean, this is a desert place. The only reason there's vegetation and life here is because what comes from the river and it's overflows by season. Without that river, there is no life in Egypt. And the very Egyptians themselves, they saw this and so they put spiritual meaning behind it, meaning they worshiped the Nile. They said, this is our God. This is our life. But here their life source turns to blood to death everywhere they look, such that the very fish they eat in her waters die. It just reeks of death, dying, and rot. Now, what's this about? This, is, this seems kind of dark, God. Like, what are you up to here? Why would you do this? this? Why would you produce such horror and death? Well, what is this about? He gives us the answer. He tells Pharaoh right there at the beginning of verse 17. What was this about? By this, you shall know that I am the Lord. Uh Uh-oh. Remember when Pharaoh was first approached by Moses? And again, he was told, you need to let God's people go. And Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? 
I don't know him, never heard of him, not going to do it, not scared of him. Well, the Lord says, after this, you're going to know who I am, Pharaoh. In many ways, you're going to wish you didn't. He is God. You've affronted him, and you've rejected his word. And for that, judgment is coming, and you cannot withstand it because you cannot withstand him. And so as God strikes, he disciplines Egypt, and he turns those Nile waters to blood. Verse 19. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt. Notice how comprehensive this is. Over the rivers, the canals, the ponds, and all the pools of water, so that they may become blood, and there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and the vessels of stone. All the waters that came out of the Nile, even the waters they collected and were holding in their buckets in their homes, becomes blood. If it came from the Nile, you can't drink it. And even as these waters turn to blood, it all happens just as the Lord had said. And that's what we find in verse 20. And then we find the effects of it there in verse 21. It reads this way, And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. In other words, there was death throughout all the land of Egypt. Now, this is where you might expect the wise person to wisen up. Oh, maybe opposing this God is a horrible idea. Things are going awful right now. God wasn't kidding, was He? And He's way stronger than I thought. We're all going to die if it goes like this, but not Pharaoh. Instead, he relies once more on his magicians and his powers. Look at verse 22. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts, so that Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. And he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And so since his own sorcerers did the very same thing, though on a much smaller scale, Pharaoh used that as his excuse. He pays no mind to it. Who cares? Verse 23, Pharaoh turned and went into his house. He did not even take this to heart. His heart was hard to the word and to the Lord. Now, we might look at that and go, wow, he was an idiot. Doesn't he know where this is going? Why doesn't he just change his mind, let the people go? Why are you going to keep your heart so hard? In other words, we think to ourselves, <laughs> if I was in Pharaoh's shoes, I would totally repent right now. That would never be me. I'd I would, of course, I'd immediately repent if things went this bad. And yet, maybe there's some in this very room You've been waiting to turn to the Lord, to turn from your sins. You've really been waiting, putting it off, putting it aside, saying, there's going to come a day where I'll really get serious, and I'll really take my relationship with God seriously, and I'll turn to Christ and follow the Lord. But right now, i got time. I don't need to do it right now. I'm just not ready yet. I haven't done this and this and this. Or I wonder about these things. i got time. But, that, I mean, I'm, you're right, Rick. I mean, when death comes near or my health gets really bad, you know, when I get older or if I start seeing things like all the water becomes blood, yeah, then it's time to get serious. I'd repent then. Well, don't be so sure. Because there's this interesting parallel. When we look forward to when God's judgment will come upon the whole earth, 
in its greatest severity. And that's pictured in the book of Revelation, known as the book of last things. And in Revelation chapter 16, we hear about these angels who are pouring out the wrath and judgment of God upon the earth. And it's interesting. In the second and third bowls, actually in both of those, what do we find? Namely, in the third bowl, we read this, the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. What you see in Exodus, and actually with all of those judgments, they are just foretastes, little pictures of the worldwide justice and judgment the Lord's going to bring upon the whole earth. Well, when it does come, and even more judgments in the book of Revelation, you'd say, wow, I mean, of course people would repent. Of course people would turn from their sins. Well, here's how they respond. Revelation 16 tells us. This is Revelation 16, verse 10. How did the people respond? Dust and ashes and begging God for forgiveness? No, here's what it says. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and their sores. They did not repent of their deeds. What did they do? They further hardened their heart. That's what they did. They said, God, you're the source of this pain? In other words, God, I don't deserve this. This isn't right to come down to me. Curse you, God, is what they said. They wouldn't repent. Even though death was everywhere, and even though judgment is imminent, and even though it's ever-increasing, even though there's only moments left to turn back to God, they refuse. They harden their heart even more. And get this. This is what's so horrible about this, is that God would still have them if they turned. God is not too proud or too stingy with His grace to reject 11th hour conversions. God will take you on your deathbed. Oh, He will. Because those who come to Christ begging for mercy, He will in no wise cast out because He's so good, He's so merciful. The only trouble is this. When you've given your heart over to continual rejection of His Word and you've given your heart over to sin, even when that last opportunity to repent presents itself, your heart's going to be too hard, too obstinate to take it. Don't assume you can have an 11th hour conversion, some deathbed conversion. It might be too late, and not because Christ wouldn't take you, but because you will refuse to take Him. You'll refuse to humble yourself. Instead, you'll cling to all your excuses about why He shouldn't judge you. Well, I'm not that bad. I went to church an awful lot. I lived a generally good life. I did so many things for other people. I really didn't hate anyone. I just kind of wanted to do my own thing at times and go my own way. And you will never find mercy for your sins. Because you will have to pay for them. And so the word is turn now. Turn right now. You don't know tomorrow. You don't know this afternoon. Don't make excuses for why he can't judge you. Because get this, he made you. He has full claim to you. He created you. He has full rights to you. You are his creation. You owe him everything. And you will give an account for what he's given you. And you should have lived your life to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what you owe him. And like everybody in this room, you have not done it. And the glimpse of his holiness and the picture of his power here 
in Exodus is just a glimpse. You have not done this. You are guilty under his judgment. But here it comes. He is merciful through his son, Jesus Christ. So let that reality of his judgment humble you. Let the reality of what Christ has done to receive sinners and that he's calling you draw you back. But the point is, do not harden your heart. Don't think he can't judge you because he can and actually he will. But will you be judged for what you have done by yourself? Or will you hide yourself in Jesus Christ? But alternatively, or related to this, don't mock His abundant mercy. This is another way to harden your heart. Don't mock His abundant mercy. Now, as we look to chapter 8 of Exodus, that is, your turning to God is half-hearted. It presumes upon His grace. You're really trying to manipulate God. And Pharaoh examples this approach as the next plague comes, plague comes and afflicts Egypt. And it's frogs, a lot of frogs. Here we go, Exodus chapter 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Verse 2, But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that will come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into your houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come upon you and upon your people and on all your servants. I mean, it is frogs, frogs everywhere, frogs. They're in your bedrooms. They're under your sheets. They're under your bed. They're hiding in your shoes. They're in your cupboards. They're in your ovens. They're in your cereal bowls. They're everywhere. They've infiltrated every part of your home life. Listen to verse 6. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. It's like somehow the frogs are like a blanket that just suffocates your whole world. You can't escape them. They're with you when you're sleeping. They're with you when you're awake. Everywhere there's frogs. And once again in verse 7, the Egyptians conjure up even more frogs. The irony, right? Who wants more frogs? Guys, use your power to get rid of them. Not make more of them. Well, they make more, but Pharaoh's not impressed anymore. And so he does, which to this point in the story is a surprising thing. Pharaoh, the supposed God of Egypt, cries out for mercy. Verse 8. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord, plead with Yahweh to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to Yahweh the Lord God. Now so far we're reading this. If we didn't know the rest of the story, we're like, Oh, he's been converted. He's been broken. He's been humbled. He's going to let God's people go. He said he would. And at this, Moses responds to Pharaoh. And he says, okay, I'll pray for you. Now, just even stop there for a moment. If you were in Moses' shoes, how would you respond to Pharaoh? Oh, the frog's bugging you, huh? It's been pretty bad. We'll try 400 years of slavery, Pharaoh. Let's let the frogs last, rest a little while. What do you think? But there's none of that. 
Because God's not like that. But if Moses will intercede for Pharaoh, one thing's going to be really clear. And it gets proven this way, such that Moses asks Pharaoh, well, let's set up a timetable. You tell me when you want these frogs gone. And we, we get the request there coming in verse 10, or Pharaoh's reply to it. And Pharaoh said, tomorrow. That is, by tomorrow, let's have all the frogs out of here. And Moses is like, sure. He says, middle of verse 10, be it as you say. So it's going to happen tomorrow, just like you requested, but why? So that you may know there is no one like Yahweh. I'm going to do it just as you requested, but so you won't try and explain this as some natural phenomena. You won't try and explain this as some weird coincidence. This is happening. The frogs came and the frogs left by the direct order of God. There can be no other explanation. And so it is. The Lord mercifully hears Moses' request on Pharaoh's behalf, verses 13 and 14. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But Pharaoh, he goes back on his promise, and he doesn't let them go to worship the Lord. Verse 15, but when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, that there was rest, he hardened his heart, and he would not listen to them again, as the Lord had said. This is it. There it is. He mocks the mercy of God. He takes advantage of it. He's thinking he can manipulate God. I mean, it's undeniable. The Lord sent the plagues. The Lord mercifully takes them away. And so suddenly, Pharaoh's very sincere foxhole faith just fades as soon as relief comes. When he was sure there was going to be an imminent ruin on his empire, he cries out to God, oh, God, show mercy. And then he gets it, and then it's like, you get up the next day, eh, frogs are gone. It's as if nothing ever happened. You ever done that? Don't we do the same thing? Maybe, maybe you think you're the product of some crisis conversion. Only your conversion seemed to be very temporary. You, know, you became ill or something like this, and you made all sorts of promises to God. Oh, oh God, if you would just heal me, or God, if I ever get better, oh God, I'll turn from these sins, oh God. We get healthier, circumstance changes, things go better in our life, and then we just go back to the way things were. The change is quite temporary. Which, as we study the Scripture, that's not biblical change. In other words, that's not conversion. That's not regeneration. That's not Christ changing your life. Because the kind of change Christ works, it sticks. It doesn't fade off. When you come to Christ, when you receive His mercy, His mercy changes you. Why? Because He doesn't merely forgive you, but He lives inside of you. He takes over your whole life such that, and the Bible brings it out repeatedly, if there is no life change, there is no genuine faith. There's no real conversion. That means Christ has not forgiven you if He hasn't changed you. 
Such that the Apostle Paul can say this in 1 John chapter 1, verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with God, but we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. In other words, you're kidding yourself. You've tricked yourself into thinking you believe in God. You can't say you've come to know the mercy of Christ and to then not be changed by it and by Him. Rather, it is that whole revelation, the realization that you were guilty before God, but He came and pursued you, and He died for you, and He's redeemed you. That revolutionizes your life. Such that as John continues, this is verse 7 of 1 John 1, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And to be very clear, It's not that by walking in the light or doing good works that makes Jesus forgive you. That's not it at all. But if you're forgiven, you're changed and you walk in the light. Your changed life is evidenced what already happened in the past. Christ has redeemed you and forgiven you and cleansed you from sin. The changed life shows the one whose sins have been cleansed. Such that if you haven't been changed, again, you're only fooling yourself. And your foxhole, mocking, manipulating faith is really no better and it saves no more than Pharaoh's does here or the trembling demons in James chapter 2. So don't mock him for his mercy. If he calls you as a savior, this means he calls you to all of him to be his Lord or that he would be your Lord. And he must be both. He can't be just a Savior and not a Lord, or one or the other. He must be both. Such that when He offers you His mercy to forgive your sins, that means you can't continue in them. You can't act like nothing ever happened. I mean, again, what good shepherd, right, would come and just let his flock continue to endanger itself? No, no, He came to rescue you. And that means, yes, from sin's penalty, from sin and hell, but also its power. To rescue you from its slaving power and the polluting guilt and bondage. Don't play with your sin. Turn from it. Turn to Christ. For His grace, Christ Himself is too good to be exchanged for anything else. Which boils down into this. Don't ignore His unmatched power. Verses 16 to 19. This God cannot be ignored. So don't harden your heart, soften it to His Word. Because that's the reality as we turn back now to Exodus 8. We just see that Pharaoh can't get away from this. He can't get away from the reality, this really is the mighty Lord intervening. And we see it now as we look at this final plague here, the gnats. Bugs, bugs, and more bugs. But this time there is no warning, there's just more judgment. Because everybody knows where we stand. Verse 16, Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. And Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. And all the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. Now surely you know how annoying gnats can be. My family recently, we were up in Maine and we went to go play disc golf, which that's a form of normal golf, except when you're bad at normal golf, you play disc golf. At least that's my case. It's basically golf with frisbees. 
enough of that. The point is, the whole course was like in the middle of the, of the woods, of a wilderness. And as soon as we got deeper into the woods, we were just berated by these gnats. They were buzzing everywhere. You know that just sound? All in your ears. They're flying up in your nose. They're stuck in your hair. Yeah, it's horrible. It got to the point, we're just throwing our discs and just running through the woods. Get us out of here. And returning back to the text, we're not even sure what these little bugs are. It could have been lice. could have been mosquitoes. Either way, it's horrible. But here's the new wrinkle with this new judgment that comes. And it surfaces as we return to these Egyptian sorcerers. Look at verse 18. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Usually they made the problems worse by making more of these guys. They couldn't even do it here. Because these Egyptian wise men are starting to wise up and realize what's going on. Verse 19. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But but Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So get this, because these Egyptian sorcerers, these are like the supernatural specialists of Egypt. And they're looking at this and saying, God, Pharaoh, there's no other explanation. This is the one God intervening, and you're standing against him. But Pharaoh didn't care. He'd made up his mind not to care. But as Pharaoh's continuing opposition to God will prove, this is not a God you can afford to ignore Now, how is God trying to get your attention? You know, I trust whatever difficulty in your life, it's not some direct plague from God, to be sure. But know this, a sovereign God, even through the very events of your life, is trying to get your attention. And that comes even through, or maybe especially through, difficulty and suffering. So don't ignore Him and His Word, even and especially when life is hard. Now, you might say to this, Rick, okay, I get it for unbelievers. You know, they need to take these warnings and turn to Christ. But if I'm already a Christian, you know, my heart cannot get hard, can it? Well, the New Testament is filled with warnings of spiritual drift, of actually hardening your heart to God. And so that's why vigilance is required in the Christian life. Things like fellowship, the gathering of the saints is needed, like what's described here in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13. This word goes to the church, but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today. Why? That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need one another. And God in His kindness gives us one another to remind us. But furthermore, He's also a loving Father who puts even challenging things in our life to directly call us back to Him. So that means when you encounter difficulty in your life, keep this first in mind, one, that if you're in Christ, through Christ, He loves you, He adopted you, He owns you, He died for you, He claims you at His own, which means He's not going to let you drift too far. So that when you're drifting, maybe some difficulty, disciplines coming from your Father to draw you back home. The author of Hebrews puts it like this. This is Hebrews 12.10. For they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but our heavenly Father disciplines us for our good, that we may share in His holiness. So be trained by your heavenly Father. Don't resist Him. Don't ignore Him. 
when the difficulty comes. This is a call to see your weakness and draw near, not harden your heart in opposition. That is to embrace by faith these truths that we know, like Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. And so does that mean everything's going to be easy? No. Does it mean everything in life's going to feel good? No. But what does it mean? It comes from a good Father who's drawing you back to Him. So don't harden your heart, but soften it at His correction. Cast yourself on His mercy. Be trained by it. Draw near to your Father. Let's do that even as we pray now.